Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I would be lying if I said I wake up every morning ready to be a mom, a wife, a friend. Sometimes my anxiety gets the worst of me and I want to do absolutely nothing. On Mothering Anxiety, a podcast by Maria Lopez, I talk about the real, the raw, and the very honest of what it's like to deal with everyday anxiety. I don't hold anything back. I use my own life experiences to be able to have others relate to me and to relate to their own experiences. My main goal is to make sure that everyone feels that they're not alone because I've been there. I've had those thoughts, I've had those worries, I've had those anxieties. If this sounds anything like you, take a listen to Mothering Anxiety, available on iTunes, Spotify, and any other major places you get your podcast from. And by this point, she had added opiate addiction to her list of pathology, not just narcissism and bipolarity. And so this completely changed the whole topography of her personality. And there was no reaching her at this point. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And no matter what she said to me, I might leave in the moment in anger, but I always came back. And then she turned the attack from me to my children. And in an instant, I went from victimized daughter to lioness protecting her den and her cubs. And I threw my mother out of my life and I never spoke to her again. Because as quick as a light switch, I saw that this was either going to be multiple generations of mental illness and addiction, or I was going to stop it right there 
and protect my kids. And that's what I chose. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. You know, history and society tells us that our mothers are our nurturers. They birth us, they feed us, they hold us when we cry. They explain lovingly about how the world works. And they're with us every step of the way, cheering us on, on our journey of life. But that is just not reality. It's not real life for so many kids growing up. Their mothers are manipulative, narcissistic, detached, unavailable. Sometimes this sinister influence on our life is so subtle and so normal that we find it hard to pinpoint what is real and what is not. And we can believe so many negative and destructive things about ourselves that it changes the essence of who we are. We don't even know who we are. I'm chatting to Marcy Brockman on the podcast this week. Marcy grew up with a narcissistic bipolar mother. Her parents were unhappy in their marriage since Marcy was born and there was a lot of toxicity around her. When Marcy's dad left, Marcy thought the relationship she had with her mother would improve, but sadly this wasn't the case. In fact, if anything, it got worse. And Marcy has spent many years searching for answers and healing to create the life that she envisioned for herself. Marcy is the author of a book called Permission to Land and a podcast And you can find the details of everything in the show notes. Marcy is sharing about ways we can heal and learn to love ourselves. Please join me in hearing Marcy's story. Marcy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. You were an only child growing up, weren't you? What were your first memories of your mom growing up? My parents were ill-suited for each other from the beginning and I don't think that they had a particularly happy marriage from the get-go and were in marriage counseling before I was even born and so I was wanted I was loved from the beginning but I don't think that I was born into a particularly happy situation my mom never worked my dad always worked multiple jobs 
my mom was an undiagnosed bipolar and a bit of a narcissist. So she never saw that she had any culpability in her own happiness or that she was responsible for making herself happy, for building a life for herself, for making herself feel loved or giving herself compassion. She always placed the responsibility for that onto her parents and then my father. And so that's sort of what I was born into. And so my mom loved me in her own way, but I don't think she could see past her own needs to ever really see me. And so I grew up not really listening to myself, completely sublimating my own feelings about things because I didn't really trust either of my parents to love me the way I needed to be loved. Now, all that's way too complicated for a very young child to understand. I just knew that I didn't feel safe and would often take a pillow and a teddy bear and hide inside my closet on the floor with the door closed. And my parents would fight and I would hide and they fought all the time and they slept in separate rooms and we didn't have dinner together as a family and they were just always at odds. We didn't take trips together. The normal family touchstones didn't happen except when other people would come over. So we'd have a holiday and grandparents would come over or their friends, the friends would barely come over, but sometimes they had friends over or when, as I started growing up and I had friends over, whenever there was an audience, they were like Ward and June Cleaver like father knows best, you know, they they were impeccably dressed, my mother especially impeccably dressed, the house was clean, she cooked like a balabusta, cooked up a storm in the kitchen, and, and nobody saw what I saw behind closed doors when everyone went home. And I was kind of always anxious as a kid. I remember missing quite a bit of school, especially the beginnings of school years. I would miss school because I had chronically anxious stomach aches. And it would take a long time for me to start to feel comfortable again and physically be able to go about my life. And um, I just had a really hard time. There was nobody to talk to. My parents didn't ever share what was really going on. They didn't tell their own parents. They didn't tell their best friends. They kept everything really close to the vest about their marriage being so terrible and, and unhappy. And then when I was 12 or 13 years old, my dad left. He finally decided he was divorcing my mother. And and I was initially very pleased because they were always fighting and they slept in separate rooms. And I thought that if my dad left, that the tension in the house would disappear, that my mother would be happier that he would be happier and I would see the best of both of them. But I was extremely naive because that's not what happened. <laughs> My mother's bipolarity did not go away. She was even more depressed. And so, you know, she was more Cruella de Vil than Mary Poppins, which is what I always had sort of described her moods as, not having psychological language as a kid. And she became more Cruella de Vil than anything else and really had all this negative stuff to say about my dad. And then my dad disappeared for six months. He told me very clearly, I'm divorcing your mother, not you. I'm leaving her. I'm not leaving you. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I will be in your life forever. And then he disappeared for six months. And I was like, well, where the hell did he go? 
I didn't trust him anymore. And all I was hearing were the really awful detrimental things that my mother was saying. So I got lost in the shuffle even more because they were both trying to make themselves happy or trying to at least cover up or pacify or deal with their own fear and anxiety about what was going on with their own lives. My dad started dating and was working really hard to support his new life and pay child support and alimony and he wasn't around and and when he did try after months and months and months to come back into my world I didn't trust him and I kept pushing him away partly because my mother had conditioned me to do that because she all she said were all these negative things and that's what I was believing. But the other part of it was that it wasn't safe for me to not be on team mom. You know, she was the one who I was living with. So if I said she was wrong and my dad was right, I had to face her wrath. And that was too unsafe and too scary. So at some point in here, 15, 16 years old, I decided that I wanted to go into therapy. So I asked her to find me a therapist, which she gladly did, but then she wouldn't leave the room. And the therapist didn't say to her that she had to leave. Instead, the therapist asked me, do you want your mother to leave? And it was unsafe for me to say that I wanted her to leave because that would piss her off. You know, as long as I complained about my dad and I kept the things that I wanted to talk to the therapist about away from her and I just said, yay, mom's great. We have a great relationship. I can say anything in front of her, like total Stepford situation here, you know, then things were okay. And so therapy didn't work. And the therapist decision, she basically said, well, clearly Marcy's not ready to open up. I think she should have lost her license because there's no way that was not true. I was the one that asked for this to all start in the first place. Yeah. So she was so depressed and so bogged down with her own confusion and her own inner turmoil that she really had no space for me. There was no bandwidth left for anyone but herself. So I grew up with this as the template for relationships that I was expecting to be a people pleaser. I was expecting to have to be a diplomat and to go with the flow and be a fly, you know, be the wallpaper on the wall rather than an actual person in the relationship. So I sublimated everything that I ever wanted and didn't speak up. And I would, I was a pushover because I wanted to make the person I was in the relationship happy. And so every romantic relationship, every boyfriend I had, I became a different version of me depending on what I perceived he would find attractive or likable. And my first marriage went through that whole thing and it was the same way. And I realized through therapy, because I've been in therapy pretty much my whole entire adult life, and I realized through therapy that that's what I was doing in my marriage. I was trying to figure out how to get along with my mother through my husband because he was the male version of my mom. I don't know that he was so bipolar, but he was definitely narcissistic. And I was just gaslit all the time and didn't trust myself. That just fed into all of my buttons, you know, all of my issues. And at one point, after we had been married for 10 years and we had two kids, I I was up in the middle of the night. Like I was just sitting up in the house, like quietly by myself, crying. And I, I realized that I didn't want this marriage for me anymore. But I also didn't want this marriage for my kids anymore. I didn't want them to think that this was what 
marriage was like. This was what relationships were like. And I didn't want them to have this kind of marriage for themselves. And so even if I wasn't strong enough to divorce him for me, I could divorce him for them. And, and once I survived that, and I saw that I was better and that my kids were happier, then I could approach the relationship with my mother. And by this point, she had added opiate addiction to her list of pathology, not just narcissism and bipolarity. And so this completely changed the whole topography of her personality. And there was no reaching her at this point. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And no matter what she said to me, I might leave in the moment in anger, but I always came back. And then in January of 2011, she turned the attack from me to my children. And in an instant, I went from victimized daughter to lioness protecting her den and her cubs. And I threw my mother out of my life and I never spoke to her again. Because as quick as a light switch, I saw that this was either going to be multiple generations of mental illness and addiction, or I was going to stop it right there and protect my kids. And that's what I chose. Yeah. Isn't that amazing that you couldn't ever choose that for yourself? But you could choose it for for your kids and then yeah. and then you It was chose a no it. brainer for them. Yeah. Like I didn't even think twice about it. This is what yeah. it was. Was your so. mum diagnosed as bipolar and getting help for that or was it No, because she she refused to believe that there was anything wrong with her. From the time she was in marriage counseling with therapists in the in the late sixties, early seventies when I was a kid, a very young child, all the way through when she was in her mid to late 60s when she died at 69 she never once took a therapist's advice when they said you have to be responsible for your own happiness you can't blame other people you can't keep going back to your childhood you're in your 40s 50s 60s whatever you have to start taking care of yourself you're the one that's responsible for you and maybe there's an addiction issue maybe we can medicate you properly you know because she was she had a a boot-sized shoebox filled with prescriptions that she would just self-medicate with any sort of cocktail she felt like so lord knows what was going on and i was schlepping her from doctors to doctors to doctors the last one was a pain management doctor who correctly diagnosed her as an addict and all of the um, ambiguous body pain that she had was all a factor of the addiction. Every time the drugs would wear off, she'd get all of this pain and she thought the pain was the problem and she kept medicating it to get rid of the pain, but it was just a big vicious circle. Mm. And the doctor basically said, we have to hospitalize you because you can't go off all these meds, just cold turkey. You could have a seizure or stroke out, you know, and she, absolutely refused would not admit that she had an issue so she just refused to see that she had any diagnosable mental illness she refused to see that she had addiction issues she just kept taking pills and this was all before the united states started a medical database where they tracked opioids 
you know, so now you can't go doctor shopping and have one doctor write you a prescription for 60 pills and another one write you a prescription for 100 pills the next day because there's a database that lets them know that you saw this doctor and this is what medicine you got for the for the ones on this list. So people can't do that as far as I know anymore legally. But, you know, they sell this kind of thing. If you want it, you can find a place to buy it. So it, it was uh, it was uh, rocky. <laughs> yeah. And what was your mum's relationship like with her mother? Was this all coming from generational trauma? Well, I think to a degree, my my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was the oldest born child in her family. She was born in 1915. Her, her, both of her parents had emigrated from the Ukraine some years before. They were very poor, lived in tenement housing in Brooklyn. She had four younger sisters, three younger brothers, all who died in infancy. My grandmother's father was an alcoholic and a gambler and a womanizer and wasn't around. So my grandmother was raised by a very strong woman who took care of the family, but she had no choice. You know, she worked her fingers to the bone and barely could feed and clothe her family. And my grandmother, I once did a, a project where I, for a women's studies class where I had to interview my grandmother. And I found out all sorts of things about how they got clothing and coats from the Jewish Aid Society in New York. And they went to school in a public school and none of them, you know, they graduated high school, but college was not an option. They didn't, they weren't of that, that ilk that wasn't an option. And so they got jobs to sort of help make ends meet and they all got married young and she and her three sisters each had two kids and then eventually all moved out to the suburbs and and my mother was one of those kids and she's the oldest of that next generation and then I'm the oldest of my generation and I think that my grandmother was pretty much an enabler of my mother. I think that my mother's narcissism started very early. She was sort of sickly as a child. And so if we add a little hypochondriasis to the mix, it might not be wrong to say so. And I think that she was such a strong personality that my grandmother would just give in to my mother because it was easier than fighting her. But I, I wouldn't say that my grandmother had any of the mental illness pathologies that my mother did. I think she was just of the depression generation you know she was born in 1915 she was coming of age teenager-ish time when when the the great depression in the united states hit and she got married in like 1940 she had my mom in 44 i mean it was a different generation they didn't talk about these things at all and um i, I don't know i i think that it was just the way my mother was wired yeah. You know, the combination of her being sickly as a child and she had rheumatic fever when she was like 10 and, and spent an entire year in bed and oh, yeah. it just changed her. Yeah. And you said that your parents didn't get along right from the beginning. What was your relationship like with your dad when you were a little kid? When I was a little girl, he was my playmate. You know, we went to the park and we had picnics and we went ice skating and he did arts and crafts with me and he got on the floor and played Barbies with me. I mean, he was he was in it. He was really gave me a ton of attention and I loved him and we were very close. And then he left my mom and I didn't speak to him for six months. And then I didn't trust him for a few years after that. And then his decisions to start his new life and to start dating again and to find love and to keep his business going. He was a financial planner and 
to keep his business going so he could afford his own life and still afford to send my mother alimony and child support. That all took precedence and he lost focus of me. And for a long, long, long time, I resented it and I was angry. Even until like a year ago, I was angry at him because I always harbored that resentment and felt that he didn't love me the way I needed to be loved, that he didn't really see me, that I was, oh, here's my daughter, you know, but when he wasn't really interested in showing me off or talking to me or about me, he was, I was always sidelined is what I'm trying to say. And when I was writing my memoir, Permission to Land, he read an early draft and was actually shocked that he was in it. You know, it's a memoir of my life and you're my dad. How could you not be in it? I didn't ever name him. His name is not mentioned. So he didn't have to. And we have different last names. So he doesn't ever have to come clean. Strangers aren't going to say, oh, you're Marcy Brockman's father. And she said scathing things about you, you know. Um, but he was shocked that he had hurt me. He was shocked that the decisions that he made during the divorce and after the divorce and for the years after that had any negative repercussions on me at all. He was clueless about all of that. And in February of 2020, right before the whole pandemic thing happened here in the, in the States, I had gone down to Florida where he lives to spend the week with him, my husband and I, my second husband and I. And we had this very long conversation about the things that happened in the memoir and the things that happened that I remember. And we talked about what he remembered. And then he told me some very shocking things about my mom that I never knew that kind of put a perspective on that six months of limbo where I didn't hear from him. He said that he called regularly and always got my mom on the phone and she'd say I wasn't there or that I didn't want to talk to him or she'd hang up on him and she never told me he called. Now, I don't know that this is true. I don't know that this isn't true. I can't corroborate it, but it does make some sort of sense, you know? And he told me things about the early parts of their marriage that I didn't know things that I, you know, there was no reason for me to know. I was a kid, you know, even when I was a teenager before he had left or things that were going on in their divorce and so on when I was a, a, an older adolescent, it was inappropriate for me to know those things. So I get why he didn't say those things until last year, you know, because it didn't occur to him that they were a problem. Wow. So a lot of it is healed. He's 81 now and I get it. You know, I don't agree with the things that a lot of the things that he said and did, but I understand now as an adult and it helped me heal a lot of those wounds that were sort of scabbed over and now the scabs are gone and it's, it's better. It's better. Yeah. But that's such a long time. A isn't long it? Like time. I'm just going, oh my gosh, like. Where? I was 51 last I'm 52 now so I was 51 last year when this conversation happened and yeah but to, to have no idea all that time and nobody you just feel like wouldn't you as a parent just want to sit down many many years ago and have a conversation and say you right. know how much I love you you know how much I care about you I'm it's just so weird that parents don't understand the effect that these things have on children who a lot of them don't up I don't think 
I just don't think people do. And it's just terrifying. Yeah. I mean, there was one point where after the divorce, he was coming over to pick me up to take me out to dinner or something. And all I wanted was to sit on a couch and watch TV like normal. I didn't want to have to go out on dates with my dad. I hated it. It was awful. We didn't know what to say. We didn't know how to act in front of each other. And this one particular night, he said, this was his attempt at what you just suggested. He said, you know, I love you. The only reason I stayed in the marriage as long as I did was because of you. And I didn't take that the way he intended. I took it the people pleaser sublimator of my of my own value. I took it as guilt, like my made my parents miserable because of me. They endured 18 years of this shitty marriage and it's all my fault. And so to me, that was worse. And I got really upset. And he didn't understand why I was upset. And I don't think I explained it as clearly as I just explained it to you. I was like 16 at the time. And I was just, you know, crazy in my own head. And he didn't understand. And he's not the greatest communicator. He doesn't know how to say what he really means to say. Because it sounds very different in his head when you compare it to what actually comes out of his mouth. Yeah. So we didn't get it. Neither one of us got each other at that point. So. Yeah, that's really hard, isn't it? Because there was an opportunity there for you to have had a, a different relationship with him, at least. Right. You know, for all those years. And it's, it's a shame that that didn't I mean, we happen. We had a relationship and I got to know my stepmother and my two stepsisters and and love them all in their own unique ways. But the relationship I had with my dad was kind of superficial because I didn't yeah. ever allow myself to be vulnerable enough to get hurt. So I always kept myself kind of hidden away. I do think also it's uh, the man of that generation. Your dad's yeah. in his 80s now. They, these men were not taught to share their feelings or no, even no. even have and, any and his, feelings. <laughs> exactly. And his his own parents didn't teach him emotional literacy at all. His dad was a drunken womanizer also and and couldn't keep a job and he spent money on women behind my grandmother's back, you know, my paternal grandparents. He was he belittled my dad all the time. He he trash talked him to his face. You know, he was a terrible father. And my paternal grandmother didn't have more than a sixth grade education and had to work to support her two kids and her and her household and did so very well. But she was extremely stoic and very cold and may have been warm to my dad, or at least compared to my grandfather, he was she was warm to him. But by the time I got to meet her, she was beyond icy. And so there really is no other way my dad could have evolved coming from that. Absolutely, because that's all, all he knew as well, wasn't it? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So when you're growing up in, in this home, you must have been quite lonely. I just wonder how did that affect your relationships with other kids at school and friends? Was it difficult? Well, I've always been a very positive person. And although I was anxious and shy as a young kid and used to get like anxious stomachs a lot, and there was a point in my freshman year of high school, I was 13, 14 years old, where I decided cognitively, consciously decided not to be shy anymore, decided that if I if I gave in to that fear of not speaking up, of not trying to make friends, I was going to be miserable. And and I had a conversation with myself or a series of conversations with with myself where where I said, OK, so you're with a group of people who you want to talk to and you open your mouth and you say something and you introduce yourself or you try to be friends or try to get into the conversation. What's the worst thing that happens? The worst thing is that they don't pay attention to you or they laugh at you. The earth is not going to crack open and swallow you whole. You're not going to die. So try it. You're going to be no worse off than you are if you're sitting in the corner by yourself. So I just did it. I was standing around with a group of kids. We were all doing publicity for one of the drama productions my freshman year of high school. And I was standing in the hallway and we were all deciding where we were hanging things up. And and they were all telling jokes and it, it was very lighthearted. And I thought of something funny to say. And the old Marcy would never have said anything. And I decided to just say it. And they all laughed. Oh, my God, you're so funny. And I was like, it worked. Yay. And that sort of started me on a very different road. And and I, I always had a very small, close group of friends. But then I sort of allowed myself to try out for the musical and to make friends with more people in the band because I played flute in the band and to try to join some more groups and clubs or to talk to more people in class. That one joke telling incident was the catalyst for like a whole lot of things. So by the time I got to be a sophomore or junior in high school, people didn't believe me when I said I was shy as a kid because I had learned to be gregarious and learned to mask the lack of self-esteem or the fear. I'd learned to mask all of it with this overly gregarious, really talkative persona. And I still wasn't liked by guys. I still didn't have any romantic luck whatsoever. I asked seven guys to my senior prom and I got seven no's. So, you know, that wasn't going well. No, that's awful. (laughs) (laughs) but you know it is what it is so um it did affect it did affect who I who I was to become and and all of the decisions that I made in every relationship because I because I was such a chronic people pleaser and I had this emotional relationship template I never learned until my 40s what a healthy boundary was that I could say no, that I could say stop, 
that I could say, no, I'm not comfortable with this, or I don't want to eat that food, or I don't want to go to that movie, or I don't like your friends, or I don't feel safe doing this. I never said any of those things because I was afraid that that would make me too troublesome, that it wouldn't be worth the effort, and that whoever it was would turn around and leave. And it didn't dawn on me that if I stood up for myself and had healthy boundaries, and then that caused that other person to leave, that I was better off without them. Yeah. That didn't occur to me until I was in my 40s, scarily enough. Yeah, I totally understand that. I put my hand up for that, for that as well. I think it's definitely something you just don't see. You just don't understand that you have a choice there, right? It's right. Just, and it's I would have given, so ingrained. I, I've been a teacher, a high school English teacher since I was 27. And I mm. would give my students... And then later, my own biological children, very good, psychologically sound, healthy advice. So intellectually, I knew the right thing, but I couldn't figure out how to connect that with my own internal emotional center. Yeah. And I was divorced and dating in my mid-40s. I was single for 10 years on every internet dating site you could think of. And I was going out with all these dates with these guys and it's, I, I was trying, I was still doing what I did in my 20s. I was trying to make myself over for each different guy into my perception of what he would find attractive, which is stupid, first of all. Second of all, I don't know who that guy is. So how am I going to know what he wants in a relationship and then make myself like that person? There was no way to be good at this. You know, there was no way that I was going to be happy at this. And there was no way that I was going to find a healthy relationship because each attempt was still fictitious. That version of Marcy didn't exist. Yeah. So whoever that guy liked or didn't like was a fictional character. At one point, I had this epiphany that it was irrelevant whether that guy liked me or not. The only thing that mattered was whether I liked him, and even more important than that, was if I liked the myself, the version of myself that I got to be in that space with that other person. And then I had to figure out, well, who the freaking hell am I? Yeah. You know? So I doubled down on therapy and I doubled down on writing in my journal. And by this point, I had rediscovered my love of painting and I began painting and I found painting to be very meditative and therapeutic. And while I was painting, I was learning patience and I was learning to process and give myself time. And I had something productive to do that created beauty in my life that nobody could take away from me that I could share with other people without revealing, you know, you don't share your journal entries. So I wanted, it was something I could share with other people without revealing too much. Anyway, it was this whole, it was art therapy before I realized that it was art therapy. And then as soon as I, I had done that 180 degree shift in my brain and began to authentically love and be compassionate towards my actual self and be proud of who I am and create safe spaces for who I am and learn how to say no and learn how to say that I don't like this guy or you're a jerk and I'm not seeing you again or, you know, whatever I, I could speak up for myself. So then I started having fun on dates because I went in empty handed and if I left empty handed, I was no worse off. 
it was the same conversation I had with myself about being shy when I was 14. So now I'm on these dates and I'm like, you know, 45, 46 years old. I've been teaching for 20 years. I have two young adult children. I own my own home. I'm financially independent. I've started a side business with my art and I'm like all that in a handbag. And either you're going to get with the program and and be someone who I like, or I'm not going to see you again. And I was empowered to find healthy relationships and my therapist and I were just marveling on, oh my God, the epiphanies just kept coming. And then my mom died and I finally could get some closure on that in, in, a, in a very odd way because she wasn't there to argue with me. She wasn't there to be her belligerent, addicted self. She didn't, she wasn't, she couldn't defend herself. She couldn't say anything, but now I had some peace and some time to examine my relationship with her. And I did it through photographs. I went through 70 years of family photographs and I began to see my mother for the cherished child and the quirky adolescent that she was and started to see her loving me when I was a little baby and a little girl. And, you know, you only take pictures of curated happy moments. No one takes pictures of the bad things. But the bad things that I had experienced along the way of these 40 some art years were was a, were obliterating all of the happy memories. And so going back and looking at all these photos, I began to remember all the wonderful memories I had with her, all the the love and the and that had that I had forgotten about. So it really helped me put all of that in a place where I could heal. Yeah. And, and be comfortable and happy. Yeah. So you were still having a relationship with your mum before she died? No, from that conversation that we had in 2011 when I threw her out of the house until she died in October th- 2013, we didn't speak at all. Oh, okay. No, because wow. her choice was the drugs. I had written yeah. her a long, le- a long letter and said, this is your choice. Either you go into rehab and I'll be with you every single day of your life as you rebuild and find your health again and so on. Or if you do nothing and stay with the drugs, you'll never see us again. And she was too far gone and the drugs were doing the thinking and she wasn't capable of making the choice I wanted her to make. Yeah. So. And throughout all of this time, obviously there was mental health issues that you were dealing with, but what about your physical health? Did that get affected by a good everything that you've gone through? I am asthmatic, but I didn't become asthmatic until I was 22. And the doctors don't have any idea why. I never really thought about it until this very moment. Maybe it was somehow triggered by a mental health thing. I don't know. I have had moments or or seasons, I should say, where I had irritable bowel syndrome that was caused by stress. And so when I was going through my divorce, and then shortly after my mom died, trying to figure out, reconcile all of that, I had IBS flare-ups. There were times when I was co-parenting with my ex-husband, which did not go well or smoothly, where it would rear its ugly head and, and that would happen. And then I started to realize that it was like anxiety. So I got a prescription anti-anxiety medication that I was taking when I would feel I took it as needed. And then eventually wound up on Lexapro because I was just so chronically emotionally raw, I guess, that even though I was, I am better 
and mentally strong and I have a good self-esteem and my current marriage is phenomenally healthy and great and better than I ever could have imagined having and my kids are doing well. We're in the middle of a global pandemic <laughs> that, yeah. you know, and and my anxiety just got to the point where I was crying all the time. And so, you know, a lot of it is past trauma still takes its toll on your nervous system. And, and now you add this and, you know, I don't think it made me sicker like colds and the flu and things like that. And, you know, I've always been a klutz. So I have injuries and broken arms and knees and various things. Um, but I definitely think that it has caused the anxiety in the chronic anxiety I've been dealing with for most of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that um, most of our health issues do come from that in the end, from personal experience and from listening to lots of other people. And often we just don't connect the two things at all. Right. I think we're just all, we're on this sort of endless search for answers for our health whereas if we can get all of the emotions and all of our mental health better then those things all seem to start taking care of themselves but I think we're often right. just on a journey of trying to fix the body and not, not right. so we much the mind. The body brain connection yeah but absolutely. I find that that meditation helps me and I don't really do anything fancy sometimes I do it first thing in the morning before I get out of bed I'll just sort of sit there and set a timer on my phone and just allow myself to breathe for 10 or 15 minutes before I actually get up. But sometimes I go for sleep and I can't do that. I find my, my painting and drawing meditative, even things like walking around the block or cleaning my house or washing dishes. If I can be mindful of sensory input, like how the glass that I'm washing feels and the water and the soap and just focus on the sensory of that and be in the moment, it calms down my whole system. You know, yeah. I could be cleaning up cat toys off the floor. We have four cats. I could be cleaning up cat toys off the floor and just the repetitive nature of always doing that or folding laundry. You know, I, I find that the sensory input helps me reach uh, a mindful state and, and, really learning how to be quiet with myself so that I could hear what my inner heart was saying, the whispers of my heart. You know, I think that we are so busy with all of the things in our lives, our kids and our jobs and our houses and our extended families and our friends and our social commitments and whatever else we fill our lives with that so few of us spend appreciable time being quiet with ourselves. You know, yeah. we pick up our phones the minute we have a down second. We can't even wait online or sit in traffic without external stimuli. I think we need to get quiet because that's where the answers are. The answers are not external to us. The answers are in us. We have the answers if we're strong enough, patient enough, quiet enough to listen, which is where I get the permission to land and the permission to heal from my podcast from because it wasn't until I learned that the only person's permission I needed to heal, to build a life the way I wanted, to behave a certain way, to do anything I wanted to do, the only permission I needed was my own. Yeah. I was the one that was in control. I am the one that's in the driver's seat. I am the one making the choices to spend my time how I do and to spend the time with whom I want and doing what I what I choose and eating what I choose and saying what I choose. It's me. No one else has that control. Even yeah. if they tried to have that control, even if I abdicated the control, it was still up to me. Yeah. 
And that mm. was a, you know, a, a, I think life is a series of epiphanies, if you're listening. <laughs> yes. And that in itself was a huge one. Isn't it amazing when something and you just go, oh, my God, I never, never thought of that before. What was important to you when you were raising your own kids that you wanted to change from the way that your childhood went? Well, I always had this idea that my parents knew everything. And, you know, as a kid, you, you know, you only know what you know. And I just looked up to my parents and figured that that's the things that they knew. And despite the fact that they were sort of screwing me up mentally for a very long time, I wanted my own children to trust themselves. I wanted them to be emotionally literate and know how to communicate how they were feeling and to trust me when I say, you can tell me anything, you can include me in any and all of your thought processes. And even if the mom in me disapproves or is upset, the human part of me will always understand or try to and not judge you. And when I was upset and I was sad, I let them know this is why I'm sad. This is how I'm feeling in an age appropriate way, obviously. But we're not always our best selves. So if I had a short moment or I was impatient or I yelled or I, you know, reacted in a way that I I saw hurt them incongruously, then I'd give myself a few minutes to calm down and regroup. And I'd go back and say, look, I overreacted. I'm really sorry I did that. This is what was going on for me. This is the story I told myself. This isn't really what was going on with you. And I didn't give you the attention that you needed or see you in the way you wanted to be seen. So how about we have that conversation again? Tell oh, me what you that. want. We'll do it differently this time. And I raised them doing that all the time. And it wasn't easy and it took consistency, you know, and and to a degree, sometimes, you know, you're the mom of a teenager. They're not going to always like you because you have to pull the mom card. You know, you can't always be all touchy-feely. Sometimes it is, no, you're not going out with your friends because she drinks or, you know, whatever, the teenage thing. So there were some times where they were just like, yeah, my mom's a crazy witch. But most of the time we had a healthy, safe relationship. You know, I, I felt to a, a large extent that when they came home to me because I was sharing custody with my ex-husband, when they came home to me, I kind of had to undo certain things and reacclimate them to feeling safe and being able to trust me. And I had to redo that every week when we would shift back and they would come home to me. And as they got older, I had to do that less because they themselves were less affected. You know, they were stronger and more intelligent and more mature and they were less affected by the, the, the whims of the wind. But I'm, I'm happy to say that, that I have a 20-year-old and a 23-year-old. My son's 23, my daughter's 20, and they obviously have their own things and their own private things, but they talk to me about everything that's going on with them, their own mental health, their own physical health, their relationships with their friends and their romantic relationships and what to do. They ask me questions about what to do about school and grad school and jobs and how do you cook this? And what do I do if I feel that? And help me find a doctor? And how do I renew my car registration? And, you know, they they come to me. My, my son, my 23-year-old son, came to me in a dating crisis with 
with his romantic life. I mean, I it's sort of unheard of yeah. for a 23 year old to talk to his mom like that. But I I love it and I cherish it and I give him I, I, I'm starting to look at him more as a peer in certain ways, like cause he's just another adult. He's 23 years old. He's an adult and he's making adult decisions about relationships that he's in and he wants to navigate things in a healthy, safe, respectful way with the women he's involved with. And I just love that he lets me be a part of it and that my daughter does as well. So, um, yay. <laughs> yay, absolutely. Yay. Like, wow. Like, if I, I, I think everything you've just said needs to be put on a pamphlet and handed out to lots of parents because, yes. because it really is just about opening your heart and having a, a loving space for conversation and connection and and just also saying I stuffed up there you know I didn't do very well and let me just redo that and I just love that because and in the end you're right I have a a couple of sons who are similar age and and you do get to a point where you're all adults and so you're going to have that completely different relationship but if there's that beautiful trust there and they're still coming to you and 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 yet they've still got their own life and they still yeah. have their their own thing going on you're not sort of immersed in their life it's no, just I'm not the helicopter parent like always <laughs> like tell me what you tell me what's going on i mean my son's in vermont he's a 6 hour drive away we speak on the phone like once a week on a, vo- a, a facetime or a voice call but we text back and forth every single day and my daughter is living home now because her school, her college went completely online. And so there was sort of no point in paying for a dorm room if there was no campus life because of the co- because of COVID. And most people were telecommuting. So she's home. And, uh, and so we've had this blessing in disguise of all this extra time that we yeah. wouldn't have together, you know, half her sophomore year and three quarters of her junior year of college, she spent home commuting through the internet. And we started going to the gym together and we cook together and we hang out and watch TV. And, you know, I just, I just love it. Love yeah, it. Yeah, it's so good. And, and I'm aware that time is fleeting. Yes. You know, she's going to be a senior in college. She's going back to school assuming the pandemic lets her she's going to be living on campus all of next year and then she's already been offered a job for after graduation and she may move to another state and this might be it for the amount of time that she's living here and I'm really aware of that and being extremely mindful to like suck up all the sweetness you know yeah absolutely do you have any books that you can recommend that have really helped you on your healing journey every single thing that Brene Brown has ever written yes <laughs> uh, Marie Forleo wrote a book called everything is figure outable that was fabulous I love the idea that no matter what your problem is you can figure it out on your own with a little ingenuity and creativity I loved Glennon Doyle's uh, Untamed which I read over the summer Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist was really pivotal for me I think I reread that book every single year Um, finding your own personal journey and your own personal truth really resonated with me as did when I was an undergrad English major I was reading 
um, Ralph Waldo Emerson from the 19th century. And he was talking about finding your own, you know, what resonated with you individually, you know, was uh, self-reliance and self-resilience and things like that, which really spoke to me as an 18, 19 year old. And as a writer, listen to, I do the audiobook version of Elizabeth Gilbert's book called Big Magic. I read or listen to every year, it talks about honoring your creativity and that voice inside you that is unique and gave me the courage to share this whole story in my in my memoir and just keep talking about it and sharing it with other people. So Marcy, you're an educator and artist. You're a big advocate for helping people heal from trauma. You have a podcast called Permission to Heal and yes. you're the author of two books, your memoir Permission to Land Searching for Love, Home and Belonging and also Permission to Land Personal Transformation through Writing. Right. Plus you have a Facebook group, I believe. I do. Please Cold tell Push. us about everything you're offering and where we can find you. So I'm on Facebook every single day. Uh, you can just search Marcy Brockman. You can find me. It's it's Marcy527 if you want to look for the page. But I have a Marcy Brockman International page that you can find. There's also my personal page. And then I have a Facebook group that's open to the public called Permission to Heal Safe to Fly. We've got like 550 like-minded people, different levels of engagement. And we're talking about all sorts of things that heal us and that we do meditation and we talk about food and we talk about relationships and we talk about books that we read and books that we like and don't like and movies and anything and everything is is open because it's it all fits into how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in the world. I have like the two books that you that you read the titles of Permission to Land Searching for Love Home and Belonging is my memoir it examines my life through the lens of my relationship with my mother and uses my 38 years of journals as primary source documents to trace the patterns of the mental illness or various pathologies through my life and the emotional template, the relationship template that I got from her and, and, and sort of unraveled it and, and how I raised my kids differently and my second marriage and it goes through it all. And then I had, as I've been talking about journaling and what a vital, important, vitally important thing that has been for myself for a very long time, I had people coming to me and saying that they wanted to start a journaling practice but didn't know where to start. And there was a little bit of an aha moment. And that's the second book, Permission to Land, Personal Transformation Through Writing, is a guided journal where I have over 100 pages of questions to guide someone into examining their own life and their childhood and their family and where they're going and the choices they've made and so on. And I have questions there to touch on every age group, every decade of your life, every season of your life. So it was really applicable to anybody. You could start it at any point. And so the books are available anywhere you'd buy books online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, anywhere, almost any continent. They've been sold in South America, North America, Canada, and Australia at this point. And one Amazing. or two in Europe, I think. So it's it's literally anywhere, uh, anywhere you can buy books online or... It's available, like you can get a signed version. I'll sign them and send them to you uh, through my website, marcybrockman.com. And there are links to my socials, to Instagram, which is marcybrockman27. There are links to that from 
marcybrockman.com. That's like the hub of everything, including links to the podcast, which kind of grew out of the Facebook group uh, since it has the same name, Permission to Heal. I started the podcast in November of 2020. Uh, episode 25 launches or drops, I guess is the better term, uh, this coming Wednesday. New episodes drop every Wednesday. And I'm interviewing therapists and coaches and uh, nutritionists and parenting coaches and dating coaches and people who've survived trauma and addicts and PTSD survivors and people who've written books and other people with podcasts and trying to glean for myself and for the audience different inspirational ways that actionable ways that we can start or continue our healing process and make our lives better. It's been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I absolutely love this. And uh, and through that, I've gotten to meet people like you and spread the message of self-compassion and healing further. So it's pretty great. It is pretty great. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. And everything you're doing is just so wonderful. I hope that people will check it out. I'll put all the information in the show notes and all the links so that people can get to you easily. Excellent. Thank you so this much for chatting today. Thank you for asking me. This was great. Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.